0: Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. You may not be able to read the slides fast enough, but they're all the references are on the notes. So if you got the notes this morning... Um, then you should be able to follow along, even if I go a little too fast. This morning is more information um, than application, and normally I, you know, I'd be opposed to that. But the great thing is, is that next week is the application. So today we're going to talk about angels and demons, and then. Next week, spiritual warfare, so it'll be more about application uh, next week. So um, instead of me doing historical theology, content, application, it's going to be historical theology, content, and then next week, more historical, more content, but mostly application. So we're going to go ahead. Um, this is the, my title slide, and so we'll uh, go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness toward us. We thank you for um, uh, the, the two lives that were joined yesterday, and it, which is uh, uh, thankfully a common occurrence among God's people here at Christ the Word. Uh, we thank you for um, our church family. We thank you for the opportunity to learn more about you in Sunday school. I pray that our hearts would be prepared for worship, that after Sunday school, that we might uh, know a little bit more about you and about your creation, in this case, um, good and the bad, really, angels and demons, and that we can uh, give you all the glory. Uh, give us ears to hear the truth and, and help me be um, uh, true to your word in Jesus name. Amen. So um, the log college, this is a drawing of the log college. This was this is circa 19 or 1727. okay, so this is You know, before our nation was founded, this is the first theological seminary serving Presbyterians in North America. Uh, It was called the Log College, and Log College alumni, then about 20 years later, would form the, uh, the College of New Jersey. And then they moved to the town of Princeton in a place called Nassau Hall, and after that, people kept calling it Princeton College. And what was going on then here, and we're talking the mid-1700s, 1746, um, this was on the heels of the Great Awakening. And the founders of, of uh, that the people that started Princeton College were Christian men who were disappointed with Harvard and Yale's opposition to the Great Awakening. Harvard and Yale had been, uh, had been founded before Princeton, and their Ivy League schools. And they um, were being affected by the, uh, the, the thinking of the Great in, the, the Enlightenment, the, things, the ideas that were coming from across the pond, as you would, they would say, from Europe. Um, which I find interesting. I don't know if you know this, but the Ivy League schools, all of the Ivy League schools except for Cornell, were all founded by the church. Religious men, Christians, founded every single one of them. Harvard, Yale, in fact, Consider this, I just thought this was interesting. I found this yesterday. This was Harvard's given mission statement in 1642. Pretty old school, right? This is what it says. Everyone shall consider as the main end of his life and studies to know God in Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. That's Harvard. Now that's not the Harvard today, but that was Harvard when it was founded. And that could be our mission statement for this class even for our church, right? Certainly it could be. Um, so the college was named Princeton University in 1896, but before that, in 1812, people from Princeton College um, founded uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. They claim it's the second oldest seminary in the U.S., probably because they trace its roots to the Log uh, college here. Um, its first uh, professor and principal's name was Archibald Alexander, and he was a product of the Great Awakening. Uh, the man I want to talk about is um, the man that he mentored, Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge graduated from Princeton College right from the beginning, and he was a product, uh, or he was affected by the, the, the Princeton revival of 1815. It's interesting that God blessed Princeton with a small revival, that he didn't do at Harvard and Yale. Um, but before this revival, Hodge thought he would be a medical doctor. Uh, but the awakening led Hodge into an intense season of spiritual searching, and he found that God had made his boyhood beliefs uh, both sincere and heartfelt. And so the principal of the school, Archibald Alexander, took particular interest in Hodge, and he mentored him to be his successor. In fact, Hodge named his first son, Archibald Alexander, and who um, started a, a line of, of uh, uh, principles at Princeton Theological Seminary. He had, um, Charles Hodge had three sons. Oh, well, he had eight children who survived um, birth. I mean, some kids didn't survive. But of the eight that survived, three of his sons uh, were ministers. Two would end up teaching at the seminary. Uh, but Charles Hodge is widely regarded as the most influential theologian Uh, American theologian of the 19th century. He was an active churchman. Um, He uh, was at the forefront of all the debates. He was a, um, you know, really an important figure. I mean the first, well I'll get to that. Um, In addition to several prominent commentaries, his most notable publication was a book um, on piety called The Way of Life. A lot of people seem to think that these theologians may, uh, may just all be book smart, but really, if you're book smart and it doesn't lead to a change of life, then it, the book smarts are useless. If theology isn't practical, then it's useless, really. And he, he says what we believe here at Christ the Word, what I believe, and I hope you believe too, that holiness is the fruit of church. When he talks about holiness, it's a word that we don't... We don't like to use the word holiness or personal holiness much anymore. It's a word that the Puritans used, and it's almost fallen on hard times. We think of holiness as being, like even the words like piety or being pious, it's almost, our culture has given it kind of a negative connotation, don't you think? That the idea of being (laughs) pious means you're stuffy almost. And that's not how it's supposed to be. The idea here is personal holiness what that really means is just pursuing godliness. It's, it's imitating Christ. Was Jesus not holy? I know that's an odd question. Of course he was, right? And we're supposed to imitate him. We're supposed to pursue <laughs> holiness. And so it, the exhibition of the truth is the best means of promoting holiness. In other words, we want to live the truth that we're teaching. And, and by that example... Ideally, we lead others to Christ. He published a, um, his magnum opus was systematic theology. I meant to bring it in. It's the, about 30 years, I bought it 30 years ago. It's three volumes. It's always been green. And three volumes, and it's the first systematic theology I ever purchased. It's, it's really, um, he, he was, he's, and as far as the 18th century goes, he's the man okay as far as theology goes anyway he said this and so i could have gone anywhere um to find out stuff about angels but i decided to turn to hodge uh for for a lot of what i got instead of frame um, and so he says this and i think it's a a fairly good quote right um, there's nothing um groundbreaking here is just essentially saying look there's something the scripture says a lot about good and evil angels, and we should probably pay attention to it. Fair enough? Okay, so let's talk about angels. Um, scripture has a lot to say about angels, but you're going to find very little propositional language about angels. There's, one, there's only one propositional statement about angels that I could find. We've already talked about it in our small group studies in Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to refer to that verse twice. So, what do I mean when I say propositional language? Propositional language is, 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 is a, a statement that conveys truth. Like um, a triangle has three sides. Uh, these are propositional statements. We're saying something is true about Scripture, that it's inspired by, if it's Scripture, then we believe that it's inspired by God and it's useful for teaching. That's a profitable um, a propositional statement, it makes a truth claim, right? We say that um, Jesus, we say these things about Jesus, he said these things about himself, and this is, this is a, these are propositional statements. We Truth claims, right? There's, very, there's only one statement that I could find in the Bible that says angels are fill in the blank. And we see that one in, in Hebrews and we'll get to it. But it seems that since angels are mentioned a lot, we need to take, and, and there aren't very many propositional statements that say angels are this, we have to take what's called an inductive approach. So inductive reasoning is when you um, make observations and then draw conclusions. Now, um, now, induction isn't always conclusive. For example, evolution, the theory of evolution was um, developed using inductive reasoning right? Scientists look, they look for patterns and they say, oh, we see some trends here. And so then they come up with a a theory, right? Evolution is still, even though science today largely teaches it as a fact, it is not a fact, it's still a theory. And it was founded on the principles of inductive reasoning, looking for looking at evidence and then saying, Hey, this happened then. That's what Darwin did. He said, well, I see some changes here, some changes here. And and then he tries to generalize and imply that to a greater extent and say, well, then maybe man, you know, even, but there's holes in the fossil record. And it's an example of how inductive reasoning isn't perfect. But if the Bible says something about angels, then we know for sure that it's at least true about some angels, right? So we know that, and so we're gonna learn about angels through what the Bible says about them. Um, there are, and I think because there's a lack of propositional language about angels, that probably leads to a lot of confusion in both the church and our culture regarding who they are and what they do. Does that? Would you agree? I would say there seems to be a lot of varied opinion about angels. And, you know, even cartoons, you know, have angels on their shoulder and demons on their shoulders and right are, are are there is what what is that all about right um, there are I did a little searching you know think uh, love technology there are 283 inst- instances of the word angel or angels in scripture when it using a new American standard and that's in addition to synonyms like hosts or spirits so from that I decided to look at each verse I know it seems like a lot, 283, but it can go kind of fast. And, and so, I spent a little time, obviously, um, going through, and I tried to find, make a list of unique observations, and I found 33. And then I tried to compare those 33 observations with other sources, like Hodge, for example. And Hodge takes a look at angels and puts it in three categories, uh, nature, uh, state, and employments. And I'm kind of looking at it as n- nature, what, what are they like? and then and the state will kind of get into inadvertently, or like indirectly, and especially when we talk about demons. And then instead of employments, I'm talking about their role. So my goal this morning is to talk about the nature of angels and their role before I talk about the, the other dudes. Um, first, the nature. So we know that, that God created them. That's what we know for sure. God created the angels. We're really not sure when, and like I said, I'm going to flash through a lot of Bible verses. I have the most Bible verses ever in a Sunday school class that I've taught. And so I'm going to count on you to kind of read through. But we know in Colossians 1:6 um, that it says all things were created through Christ, whether invisible or visible. So we know that angels were created. A second thing we know is that angels are spirits. And here is that propositional statement about angels that I was talking about. It says directly what angels are and what they do. But we can't, because angels are mentioned well over 200 times, we don't want to limit our knowledge of angels to this one propositional statement. Angels certainly could be much more, correct? But we have to be careful to attribute too much too. We want to use scripture as the deciding authority here but we do know that they're spirits. And then there's something else. I'm gonna use this verse twice because it talks to their nature and to their role, doesn't it? And we're gonna get to the role in a few minutes. But what we do know is that they're spirits. And what do we know about spirits? Well, spirits don't have bodies. They don't have physical bodies. And in fact, you know, I've talked about church councils back in the first lesson. And uh, there's a council of Lateran Actually, a number of councils that met um, called Councils of Lateran. But in the, about the 13th century, that group decided that angels were not composed of matter. So the word, the, the technical word is incorporeal. Uh, incorporeal. In, in I don't know how to say it because it's not a word I used. But this has been the common opinion of the church. So what does that mean? Angels are invisible incorruptible, and immortal. Wow. However, there are many, I mean, generally speaking, by the way. But then you say, wait a second, invisible? Didn't we see angels in the Bible that were like humans? Yes. So now we have to reconcile that, right? We know that angels are spirits, and we know that spirits don't have bodies. So how is that? For example, we, you might remember in our Genesis study last year, how it says angels came to Sodom and they were humans and we see examples of them being in human form we see and we're not we're not near to chapter 13 yet in Hebrews that'll be at the end of our small group study but apparently from this verse doesn't it suggest that we must be interacting with angels and don't even know it right so they're taking human form so how do we reconcile the fact that that there are spirits but that they some, sometimes have human form. And so we have to make a, an assumption, right? It's all we're left to do. That's why I said this word taking an inductive approach. That God has given them the ability, according to His will at certain times, to take on a human form, even though they are their nature is that they're spirit, just as Jesus was fully God and fully man. So they're... they're Otherwise, how do I reconcile it, right? Because in one case, it says they're spirits. In one case, it says they're like a human. And certainly, you can see a human. So that's something we know. Um, Again, I don't want to make too much of it. But I do think that it's verses like this one in Hebrews, and, and really the other one, you know, this one. These two verses say a lot about angels. And it's something I think we can hang our hat on right? We can draw some implications there. Um, The third thing I want to mention is that it appears that angels have a hierarchy, that they're not all the same. The angel Michael is called an archangel and that's a title, meaning like he's a special angel, right? Maybe even the top dude, I'm not sure. But it's definitely a title that indicates authority. The only other angel mentioned by name is who? Gabriel. So there's only two angels mentioned by name, Michael and Gabriel. And I, I through studying, you, you find out there's three different kinds of angels. The first is the cherubim. And again, a lot of information. I don't think it's important that we memorize all this stuff, but I'm just trying to you know, do my part in informing you, right? So the cherubim have various roles, and they're mentioned many times in the Old Testament and once in Hebrews. And we see a verse you know, that gives the example. The second type are seraphim, and they're only mentioned once, and they're angels that continually worship the Lord, and the verse here in Isaiah is an example of that. And then there's a third type, and again we're not really sure, but it seems that the living creatures that are described in Revelation that are around God's throne are also types of angels. So it's possible here. And so here we have angels that are spirits, but have the appearance of a living creature. And that's what I'd like to say, that even if if an angel is here in the form of a human, I wouldn't say that they cease to be a spirit. I'm saying they're a spirit in the form of a human, taking the form of a human by God's grace. The fourth thing about angels that we know is that they're powerful, right? Angels are mighty ones who do God's bidding. And boy, the, the examples of the powerful, the, the, the sheer power that angels can wield is remarkable. And you know, here's a good example down here, right? Where, um, where they struck down 185,000 soldiers. Um, that's a lot, right? Angels use their power uh, to battle against Satan's evil forces. And we read about that in Revelation. Um, there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Uh, so, um, now let's be clear, though. Angels do not possess divine power. Angels are not like God. They may have some similarity in God is spirit. That's what Jesus says in John 4 i think he says god is spirit i'm doing this from memory here and it's getting worse every year Um, so angels do not possess divine power they're not omnipresent does that make sense they're not everywhere all the time they are always somewhere and not everywhere at any given moment here's an example look at look at this verse in daniel if you can read it i'll read it real quick but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then, behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. Now, if angels were omnipresent, Michael would not have had to come to help because he would have already been there. You follow? Angels are not divine. So, again, I I agree with Hodge here based on what I've read, based on my study. Angels cannot create; they cannot change substances; they cannot alter the law of nature's. Now they are; they can wield power that God gives them, just like um, Paul didn't. I mentioned Paul and Eutychus. Paul didn't raise Eutychus from the dead; God did. God worked through Paul's faith. So when Jesus says, "Your faith can move mountains." It's not us that's moving the mountains, and it's not even the faith that's moving the mountains. God is moving the mountains through our faith. Our faith is a vehicle, okay? But it's still fair to say that faith works. I've seen signs that say faith works. It does, but it's God working through faith. It's not my faith. I can't say, well, my faith did this. I can't do that, right? I can say God was gracious enough to work through my faith and give God the glory. Am I making sense? We have to do it, we have to see it that way. I don't think that's even up for grabs. And so, um, now let's talk about the role of angels. Um, Hodge uses the word employment. So first is that they're servants of God. And some of you maybe have heard this before, you think of angel, you think of messenger, and the reason is, it, angel derives from the Greek word angelos, and it's a translation of a Hebrew word that actually means messenger. And so we see, you know, a, a good example of that, that angels, what, one of the things that they're supposed to do is that they, they carry messages, right, uh, for good reason. Um, a second thing they do is they carry out some of God's judgments. Uh, this is pretty much uh, straightforward. Again, I'm not telling you something you don't already know, many of you. I think that I wish I had some really cool stuff to tell you um, that maybe you didn't know. But um, I don't have a lot of cool stuff. But next week will be way better. Um, so they carry out some of God's judgments. This is an interesting verse. They, they patrol the earth as God's representative. So they're, you know, they're all over the place. We can't see them. They're invisible. And I think there's lots of them. I think we don't know how many, but we think there's lots of them. The Scripture gives us the impression that there's lots of angels, and not any more than we can count, I suppose, but not an infinite number. They're created, so it's definitely not infinite. Um, and then we know, too, that when Christ returns, um, an archangel will proclaim his coming. Uh, so, yeah, that's the first thing I wanted to say. Um, the second thing is that they're ministering servants to God's people. And this was the, the verse I mentioned previously, the one propositional uh, statement about angels in Scripture that I could find. And this is really great, isn't it? I mean, isn't it great that there are angels meant to help us? That is the goal here. Um, it's, Calvin said it's God's extraordinary love for us that angels are continually engaged for our be, on our behalf. Um, now, we can't be certain, and this is one thing I am going to clear up, we can't be certain that we've been assigned guardian angels. But the reality is, Scripture does say that God does assign some angels to protect us. I mean, it, it, we get that from Scripture, Right? And in fact, there's another verse in Matthew that says it seems that some individuals, in this case, children, appear to have a kind of guardian angel. And I think this is where that notion of guardian angel came from, was these words of Jesus that are recorded in Matthew. This is where the, but we can't be certain that every single person has their own personal guardian angel. But please read this verse. It says, For I say to you, that there, and this is Jesus speaking, their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father. So their angels are just possessive. The idea that they, it's as if there's angels assigned to children. And that's where I think Catholics get the notion of, you know, oh, that's my guardian angel. And it's not, it's not totally wrong. We just don't know for sure, right, that everybody, like in the, one of my favorite movies of all time is It's a Wonderful Life. And maybe the younger people don't know it, but my kids know it because we used to watch it every year when we were making Buckeyes. You know, it takes a long time to dip those Buckeyes, right? And we made lots of them. And so we'd watch It's a Wonderful Life, and it's a, it's a movie, it's um, uh, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, and Jimmy Stewart um, wants to end his life. He was a good guy, but things just didn't go his way. you know. Just things were going. He, he wanted to end his life. And God sent him his guardian angel. And his guardian angel turned things around. It makes me cry every time. All right. So I've seen it probably 15 times, and I cry at the end more every time. Um, it's just crazy. Okay, I'm on slide 24. i got to get moving here. So we don't know if we're assigned guardian angels, but there's a good chance that there's angels looking out for you. God loves you. He loves the elect. I know it's another word that seems to be, you know, we don't say a lot. And we should say it. It's okay. God loves those whom he has chosen. And he has angels protecting you. I just don't, I can't stand up here and say, you have a guardian angel named Stephen. You have a guardian, you know, named Phil. I, I don't know that, you know. But he does send angels and they're good, and God loves us, and that's great. A third thing is angels glorify God. And in fact, it seems, in my looking at, the, at what the angels do, it, I get the impression that the ultimate work of holy angels is to glorify God. Um, this is just one of many verses that led me to this conclusion. You know, and angels also glorify God as they witness his plan unfolding, right? And so we see this famous verse, you know, when the angels appeared to the shepherds. And I also, isn't it cool? Like there's something in Scripture that it says when one of us is saved that angels are, you know, happy, right? They're glorifying God, right? So um, it, it seems, I, it's, it must be like the ultimate work just to give God glory. It's almost like if when, you know, he tells an angel to go, you know, oh, go help out Randy. Okay, but I'd rather glorify you. You know? Not that that's happening. I know I probably shouldn't even say this. I've just, that's not in my notes. But it's just me, you know, musing, you know, me thinking. Um, I, I get the impression the ultimate work is glorify God. Okay, now we get to the other side. Satan and demons. And even in theology, there's angelology and demonology. They actually have words for this sort of thing. Um, study of angels, study of demons. And so this is where I'm going to talk about the state of angelic beings a little bit. It's inferred from Scripture that all angels were originally holy. And I think that's most of what most of us have been taught when we were little, right? That there was all of these, these good angels that God created, and some of them went rogue. And those are the demons. And yeah, that's pretty much fair assessment. Because since everything God made was originally good... Again, this is me making inferences in Scripture, and I have help from other theologians. Some angels must have defected from their good good condition after the original creation. Because the tempter of Genesis 3 was a fallen angel, the angelic fall must have preceded the fall of man. Uh, Scripture does not narrate the fall of Satan and his angels, but we have an idea of what it was like Because Isaiah and Ezekiel use imagery suggesting analogies with the fall of Satan. And this is a lot here, and maybe, I don't know if you've got good enough eyes to read all that. It was hard for me to fit it on one slide and still make it big. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. It's exactly what, what, this, what the serpent used to uh, tempt Eve, right? The idea of wanting more. There's that quality of wanting more, being like God. And so um, I'll quote uh, Wayne Grunem, uh, I think, is pretty, pretty lucid. You know, he has a systematic theology, too, along with John Frames. His is more, more popular than John Frames because I think he is a little more lucid. Uh, but John Frame is, um does a great job, and I, I guess I would prefer it in the long run, but Wayne does a good job, too. Another contemporary guy, and you may have heard of him. Uh, demons, he says, are, and this is fair, It's like, sometimes when I read something, I can't unsee it, you know, and so I just got to give the guy credit because I couldn't write it better. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. I know it's a simple statement, but it was really well worded, and I appreciate that. Okay, so Satan, there's a dude, I keep saying dude, a guy, a being, a spirit, there's a spirit, Satan, he is the head of the demons. There's only one. And I'm guessing he's a pretty powerful guy or spirit, let's say. Guy, maybe. So, in the spiritual world, there's only one devil, Satan, and that there are many demons. Satan is the head of the demons. And so, here's a slide that talks a little bit about, and again, we want to consider. Satan came along, he's certainly a person. And then we See another verse in Zechariah, Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And in Luke, we we see when uh, he said to them, Jesus, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So there is one person, Satan, ahead of the demons. That's what scripture seems to say. The word Satan means adversary. Now, we're going to go through a lot of verses rather quickly right now, okay? So be on your toes. If you can't read them all, it's not terrible. You can look them up. Um, There's a lot of names for Satan. He is called sometimes the devil. Okay, not a devil, but the devil, right? And so here's a couple verses. And so, um, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil. Sometimes you'll see devil or Satan capitalized because it is a particular person, individual, uh, sometimes not. Scripture doesn't want to assign too much to them, so it depends on the translators. Just like some translations, you know when it says he and it refers to Jesus, they make a capital H. But the capital H wasn't there in the Greek, so it's the liberty of the translator to make it he capitalized H. I always do it when I write because it's kind of respect for God, right? So if I say he, him, you know, I usually use a capital H. Um, so the devil, that's one name. The next is serpent. All right, and this is the same, same being that tempted Eve. Uh, Paul refers to him, calls him the serpent. And, of course, we read about it in, in Genesis. And, again, even he's called that, it says here, the serpent of old. Right, I think I have that on here. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. So he has lots of names, lots of names. A third one is Beelzebul, and I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I hear people say it different ways, but um, again, it's Jesus' words. Or, I'm sorry, these are Pharisees, and they said, you know, they call him, and he's the same guy. Satan's also called the ruler of this world, another term or title that he has. Um, again, this is Jesus talking. He's been called the prince of the power of the air. This is Paul's uh, phrase. He uses it in Ephesians 2. And he speaks a lot more about this in Ephesians 6. And we're going to talk about Ephesians 6 next week when we talk about spiritual warfare. He's also called the evil one. Again, very specific. Once again, Jesus talking in Matthew. uh, The apostle talking in the second verse that's quoted there. And... Overcome the evil one. So there is a main uh, uh, being called Satan who has lots of different names. Now let's talk about the work of Satan and his demons. All right. Um, I have three. I don't remember what exactly I put in the... In the uh, I edit this thing. You know, I have nine pages of notes and I get it down to like one and a half. So I'm kind of curious how much I put in here. So it looks like I've got all the the headings in here. That's good. So number one, you'll see it in the list. He's the originator of sin. And we see that here in John 8. Again, Jesus speaking. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so um, I think... Jesus is saying, look, sin came from Satan. He was the first one. He's not only the originator in his own heart, but he's also obviously the one who was the originator with Eve in the garden. What does Satan do? What's what's his purpose? What's his end game? Well, I think he seeks to have dominion over all men. Here's another quote from Hodge. I think it's spot on. Man, by his apostasy, fell under the dominion of Satan, and his salvation consists in being translated from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God's dear Son. That's why Paul says that you know, he calls the, these, or, or Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. If, if we're not aligned with Jesus Christ, then we are subject to the, to the ruler of this world, which is the person opposed to Christ which is Satan, and his demons. Um, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, so it follows that Satan's authority is subordinate to Christ, but he does have some authority. Now, Understand, God does not allow Satan to have dominion over the souls of believers, and we'll talk more about this next week. This is important. This is kind of encroaching on the topic of spiritual warfare, which I'm saving for next week. Um, So, Satan is the originator of sin. He seeks to have dominion over all men. Number three, he works to oppose and destroy every work of God. Now, again, I I said before, the mission is to deceive the whole world. I kind of wonder, like, what what I've wondered is, he fears God, right? I mean, James says that even Satan believes certain things about God, and they, right, they shudder, right? And we saw what happened when evil spirits came in contact with Christ uh, during his ministry, right? They were afraid. What do you have to do with me, son of man, son of God, right? They were afraid of him. So they, Satan knows that God's really powerful. He probably has this idea. if He's, he's got to be smart enough, because he's smarter than us, and I can figure this out that he's not allowed to do stuff without God letting him, right? Like when he went to Job, basically God gave him permission to do certain things and said, this is a line I'm not letting you cross. So he's got to know that he can't just do anything. And so what I've always wondered about is, well, like, why doesn't he give up? Right? I mean, he sees what's going on, I would think. He sees that God's powerful that his power is limited, he already, he's read the Bible, you know, he's already sees what's going to happen in Revelation, so it's kind of like, why doesn't he, and he he probably, imagine what happened when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and then he was raised from the dead, and he said, it's like he saw Satan fall from heaven, so you kind of wonder, why doesn't the guy turn it around, right? But he can't, apparently. He can't. And so now it's almost like he just wants to be an irritant. I I really don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. It would be, you know, in a perfect, in our own idyllic sense, you know, if we were to write the script ourselves, we might want to see all the bad angels converted to good angels. And I suppose God could do that. But God, it does seem that it's part of his plan to punish them, to, to administer justice. And it's justice is important to God. And it's really amazing that He has mercy on us, given that, right? Because justice would say that we would deserve judgment too, because we continually sin. I sin all the time, right? I, I, I'm assuming I'm not the only one. So but God loves us, and he, he loved us. And this came up when I, when, we were doing, when I was doing the questions for the small group. Jesus loved us even when we were his enemy. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. That's always astounded me. Okay, so um, their work is to oppose and destroy every work of God. I previously quoted this. I think that they just... They're trying to make it as difficult for God as possible, and maybe they're holding out this grain of hope that maybe there's a loophole. because that's what our sin is, that's how sinful we are. We looking for loopholes all the time. I am going through a really hard time as a math teacher teaching algebra, because there are so many apps out there that can just you type the problem and it gives you the answer. And then kids go to lunch and then they, they share things and they take a picture of the. It, the technology, it, kids, I mean, it's in human nature to look for a new loophole. It is driving me crazy and I'm making it my mission to eradicate cheating. And it's really hard. It's really hard, it's almost like I'm dealing with a host of demons. It's crazy. So, their, their goal is, is to oppose and destroy every work of God. And I think they're, ideally, they just want to, you know, this, it's like this gospel is making me mad. I don't like it. Satan doesn't like the light of the gospel, and he's doing everything he can to oppose it. So, let's go ahead and wrap up. I have three minutes left, and let's talk about the future of Satan and demons. And the destiny of Satan and his angels is unmistakable. It is the eternal lake of fire. We can't sugarcoat it. And that's what Jesus said. These are Jesus' words. You've got a place that's been prepared for you. It's for God's glory. It's not like he enjoys destroying people. It's part of his plan. It, it brings him glory. Not that he needs it, but that it's, it's, it's proper. It's appropriate. It would be, like, wrong if he didn't get it. Right? It just wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense. And so while Satan and his demons are a formidable foe, we should remember John's encouragement. And this is what we're gonna spend time talking about next Sunday. We're gonna talk about spiritual warfare. We are battling Satan and his demons. Now, we, we need to clarify some things, and we're gonna do that next Sunday. But, as C.S. Lewis, and this is a quote I'm gonna end on, um, there are two ways you can go with this. Well, actually, three. You can go one way, which isn't so good, The other way, which isn't so good, or hopefully, as we'll discuss next week, a balanced approach. Now, I don't really care for the word balance too much because I think people use the idea of balancing truth and error, and I don't want to do that. But what C.S. Lewis is saying, there are two equal and opposite errors, and we want to be careful not to fall into either one, not to give too much credit to Satan and his demons, and not to, stand, you know, oh, the devil made me do it, and then be preoccupied with that stuff, That can be dangerous, but on the other hand, it's dangerous, what Lewis is saying, is to just think that, oh, it's no big deal. You know, Jesus Jesus is victorious, and you know, because that's not what Paul says. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So that means something, right? We need to figure out, what does Paul mean when he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood? That's next week, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you we love you we praise you you are due glory and i pray as we we think about your marvelous creation both angels and regrettably demons but everything is with a purpose for you 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 test us that suffering as we talked about in, in small group questions if we've done those we've we've seen how suffering is a part of every christian refine us lord perfect us i pray that we can Uh, rightfully give you the glory and prepare our hearts for worship, I pray. Bless all the teaching that's happened from uh, small children up to the adults. I pray that you'd bless our church, take care of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is Truth to Live By.